All right, thank you, Aaron, for leading us in our singing today. Uh, These ancient words that are ever true, 2,000 years later, we're going to study those ancient words this morning. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, or turn on your device, whatever it may be. Now, as you're turning over there, we have a small enough group today that this should work just a little bit. I want to ask you some get-to-know-you type questions. And you can answer these out loud, just don't get chaotic and start talking to your person beside you, but let me just ask these questions and feel free to answer them out loud, and I'll get to know you as a crowd just a little bit, or as a, as a group, I shouldn't use the word crowd, but as a congregation. So here's the first question, what is your favorite food? Pizza is what I heard, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite sport? Who's your favorite superhero? Green Arrow. What's your favorite movie? Princess Bride. I heard that two services in a row. Who's your favorite preacher? Just kidding. Don't answer that one. Don't answer that one out loud. That could hurt my feelings, uh, depending on what you would say. Uh, So, you know, we play these get-to-know-you games. If we're meeting somebody new, what's your favorite this, what's your favorite that? We ask kids that a lot. And the truth is, we're not going to give the same answers. In fact, as you were answering those, and y'all did a lot better than the first service, so thank you for that, but I was hearing all kinds of different answers to those questions. We're unique people. We're not going to all give the same answers. But what is true for all of us is we all favor certain people. We all have our favorites. There are certain people in this life that we gravitate to more than others. There are certain people that we would rather spend more time with. And you know, to be honest with you, I think that's acceptable to a certain degree. And here's what I mean by that. It's acceptable if I want, if I tell you my favorite people in the world are my wife and my kids. Would you challenge me on that? No, I think you'd be okay with that. If I say I favor them and I want to spend more time with them than anybody else, I think you would be okay with that. That's acceptable. But in a church setting, in a work setting, school setting, when we feel like somebody's playing favorites, then it starts to get uncomfortable. Then it starts to feel a little lopsided. I grew up in Greenville, Texas. And at the Greenville High School that I went to, every year we had a school dance. And at the school dance, they would give out these awards called class favorites. So freshman, sophomore, junior, senior would receive uh, an award for the top two females and top two males per class who were the class favorites, and we would vote on it. The criteria for what you voted for or why you chose who you voted for was literally nothing. Just who is your favorite people? Who are the, it was a popularity contest. I always thought that was kind of strange that we just voted on our favorite people, but then again, I never won class favorites. I never made it into the yearbook for that, so maybe that's why I felt like it was a little bit strange. We don't like it when we're not somebody's favorite. And I don't just mean not winning the award class favorites, but within friendship, tight friendship circles or family, families, extended family, if you feel like somebody has a favorite and you're not one of them, you feel excluded. It hurts. But on the flip side, if you are a favorite then you're okay with that. We usually don't complain if we are somebody's favorite. We just don't like feeling excluded. So the text that we're going to look at today that Lewis read part of it for us earlier is James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. A little bit longer of a reading than what we're used to. But this is where we get the principle, do not show favoritism. 
This is it. This is the classic text. I want to remind you, though, before I begin reading it, that we're taking a theme-by-theme approach to the book of James. So instead of going verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, we're doing more theme-by-theme. We've looked at trials, we've looked at wisdom, and then last week we started this theme, Directed at the Rich. In James chapter 1 and James chapter 5, he gives a strong warning, the harshest rhetoric in the entire book, a strong warning to the rich. And today, the text we're going to look at is a strong warning to those who favor the rich. So follow with me. I'll stop and comment just briefly here and there, uh, 13 verses, and then we'll look at some application of this. I'm reading from a New Revised Standard Version, and it starts with a question. My brothers and sisters... Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? What a question. If there was a litmus test to see, do you really believe in Jesus? You probably would not put that question on there. But James says, do you, with your acts of favoritism, do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And in verse 2-4, through he gives an example, two contrasts. He says, suppose... I guess this is a hypothetical situation. Maybe it really happened. I think it really happens. But he says, For if a person with gold rings and and fine clothes comes into your assembly, whoever this person is is very wealthy and they're flaunting their wealth. So this person walks in. And if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in and you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, Have a seat here in a good place, please. You're all excited about that. Or the one who is poor, you say, stand there, sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Uh, Verse 5 is a little bit perplexing, and I think we kind of answered that last week in greater detail. We talked about the reversal theme in the Gospel of Luke and how James continues that reversal theme. And we also talked about how most often the poor are those who are receptive of the Gospel. Usually those who have wealth, they don't see as much of a need for God in their lives. Anyways, verse 6, we'll keep going. But But you have dishonored the poor person. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into courts? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? Now we get a little glimpse as to how these rich people were oppressing the poor. They were taking them to court. And in that culture, rich people had the money to bribe judges. So you could get a court hearing and the judge would order in your favor because you bribed them with money, possibly. So this could be over land disputes. Maybe the rich were kind of stealing money from poor farmers. Or if somebody owed the debt a rich, they could throw them into debtor's prison. Things like that. James is saying, hey, they're taking you to court. They're exploiting you. They're taking advantage of you. And yet when they come into your assembly, you show them special favor. All at the same time, they're the ones taking advantage of you. That doesn't even make sense. In verse 8, it almost seems like he switches gears a little bit, but we'll come back to this in a minute. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show that you do well, but then he says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. 
In verse 11, he gives an example from the Ten Commandments. Two examples. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. You have become a trans... If, now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. This is the second time in the book of James where he's referred to the law of liberty. He already referred to it in chapter 1. The law of liberty, we're no longer under the old law. We have this new covenant that's been ushered in by Christ. Okay, verse 13, For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, that's a little bit longer reading than maybe we would normally do on a Sunday morning, so thank you for staying with me. These ancient words, ever true, from that song that Aaron just led us in. Do not show favoritism. Favoritism is a sin. Well, thankfully, now all these years later, we don't struggle with that anymore, right? Uh, I guess we still do. Same problems. That's the wisdom of God. He knows, guiding James or the Holy Spirit, that the problems they were having then are the same problems we have today. So let's go ahead and focus first on how we recognize favoritism. How and why we show favoritism. I started as a youth minister in 2008. I was hired at a church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. And within my first few months, I was 23 years old, fall of 2008. Uh, we were trying to get into the school system to be around the kids in their environment. And so I was invited to eat lunch with some 7th graders in our youth group. And I said yes, although... I'll be honest with you, it made me really uncomfortable. It's awkward to show up into a school cafeteria and eat there because you feel like you don't belong. So thankfully, these youth group kids had saved me a seat. Otherwise, it would have been really awkward. So I sat down with them at the table. I'm talking to them. I'm meeting uh, the kids in, in our, my youth group and some of their friends. And I notice, I look around the school cafeteria, and I'm like, why do you choose to sit where you sit? Because you don't have assigned seating. So you have the option to choose where you want to sit. And without missing a beat, these kids said, oh, easy. That's that race, that race, that race. Those are the popular kids. Those are the smart kids. And they just went around the room, and they had a label for every table. And I'm like, you're 12, 13 years old, and you've already separated yourself into these different seating charts, just naturally, based on either race or social order of a popularity contest. Why do we do things like that? Well, I think for one, we show favoritism because we have a corrupt value system. And I'm not just picking on seventh graders or junior high students. Uh, as I said in the first service, you're doing great. Don't, I mean, it's a tough world. It's a tough age. But as adults, we don't really grow out of that. We have a tendency to separate ourselves and, and kind of show favoritism based on a corrupt value system. James says favoritism is a sin. And this is how you would define the Greek word that's used for favoritism. It's to receive someone according to their face. But James says, don't do that. But let's press into that just a little bit more. There's a preacher named Jordan, uh, I think, what's his name? Jordan Rice. Jordan, Jordan Rice out of New York. And, and so I'm borrowing what I'm about to share with you these words from him and the way that he categorized this. But he said, we show favoritism based on kind of four categories in the way that we judge people. And all four of these start with the letter A, so it's a very preachery thing to do. So the first word is appearance. 
We judge people according to their face. We look at the external appearance. We look at the outward appearance and we make a judgment. And maybe we favor certain people over others. We look at the way people are dressed. We look at the color of skin. We look at their hair. We look at, as a lot of people keep noticing, my own beard. Oh, why do you have such a big beard? You know, it's like you see me and then you automatically see this, the way I look. We look at people's vehicles. We, we look at all these outward things, even though biblically we're told that God looks at the heart, we still, even as Christians, we always, it's like we go straight to the external, the outward appearance. Newsweek magazine several years ago conducted a survey, and they interviewed, surveyed several managers, people who own companies or at least are running a company, hiring and firing employees, and it was anonymous, so they were honest, and part of what the survey revealed was that the more attractive you are, the more likely you are to be hired or promoted. And the flip side, the less attractive you are, the less likely you are to be hired or receive some kind of raise or a promotion. Basically, they're saying we base it off of who is visually appealing to us. We judge people based on appearance and we show favoritism based on appearance. The second A is age. Depending on what age bracket you are in, we judge people and and then we show favoritism to certain age groups. That same Newsweek survey that I just mentioned, they said that if if you're within a peer group, but you look older than others, you're less likely to be hired or promoted. We look at these external things. We look at appearance. We look at age. We look at achievement. If we think somebody has been successful or they're well-known in a particular field of study, or our job, work, career, whatever it may be, if somebody has achieved a lot, we're more likely to favor those people. Why do we do this? Why do we show favoritism to certain people over others? Well, for one, I think we're, we're wanting to elevate ourselves. If we surround ourselves with somebody who has achieved a lot, who is well-known, who has great status, well, then we think, selfishly, it'll profit us a little bit. Psychologists talk about an in-group bias. If somebody is in our in-group, we have a bias towards them and we'll show favoritism towards them. But even within our in-group, if somebody has achieved a lot, has a higher status, then we'll favor that person even within our in-group more than others. So we have you know, age, appearance, achievement. And then what I think James is talking about in James chapter 2 is affluence with money. That we will show uh, special privileges to certain people, special treatment, if we think they've got some money. Again, because we think maybe it'll profit us to be around them, to butter them up a little bit. I don't, I don't really know. But I'll use an example of my own life. This happened from all the way back in 2011, was it? 12? No, you're wrong. It's 2011, right? Anyway, it was 11 years ago. Sorry, I just told my wife she's wrong in front of others. Second service, so my brain starts to get a little foggy. But anyways, it was 11 years ago. We lived in Rwanda. These two guys, uh, Ajid and Sadat, we became pretty good friends with them. We went there to work with street kids, and they were teaching at a school for street kids. So uh, we went and worked with them, developed this friendship. These were poor guys who, who were in their late 20s, older than the average American college student. But they were working full-time and also full-time students, and they lived on about a dollar a day, and they ate one meal a day. 
So as we developed this friendship with them, we tried to treat them to kind of some nicer things, I guess you could say. We took them to the safari park. We took them to get coffee. And one night, I took them to a special spot in Kigali, Rwanda, to take them to a nicer restaurant that they had never been to before. And I'll never forget how weird that night was for me. Because when we walked into the restaurant, which, by the way, our waitress was a Rwandan, but she looked at me, she looked at them, and she thought, those are two poor Rwandans. She spotted them out. She smelled them out right away. She looked at me, international guy, probably American. So she's thinking, he's got money, they don't. She wouldn't even look them in the eyes. She barely talked to them. She barely acknowledged them. And she was really kind and respectful to me, but incredibly rude to them. So I guess I was the affluent one in that situation, and I was favored. I don't have too many examples like that. That never happens to me in America, but you go to Rwanda, and they treat you like, hey, you have money. But we have this corrupt value system. It's not just here in America. It's around the world. We judge people based on their appearance, their age, their achievement, their affluence, and we favor certain people over others. And James says, don't do that. If you're a follower of Jesus... Don't do that. It's one thing to diagnose the problem and point out these different words, and you know I could harp on that all day. But what do we do? How do we respond to this text that we've read today to not show favoritism? How do we correct favoritism and set a better example for the world around us? Well, let me offer you three little thoughts here in, in conclusion to this sermon today. For one, is we can correct favoritism by recognizing our neighbor, and everyone. Remember, if you, if you look back at the text that we read in James chapter 2 and verse 8, he, he says that you will do well if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you follow the royal law. Did you notice that? In, in chapter 2 verse 8, he called it the royal law. Why is it the royal law? Well, often when Jesus was approached with the question, what's the greatest command? How does Jesus respond? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and he also quotes Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law because Jesus is the king. As James had already said in verse 1, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king, so this is the royal law. And James says you will do well if you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is our neighbor? That's a good question. Who, who is it that we're supposed to love? Well, remember, Jesus was asked that question in Luke chapter 10. How does Jesus respond to the question, well, who is my neighbor? He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, I preached on that earlier this year, so I'll just give you a short summary. There's nobody who is not your neighbor. Jesus says everybody is your neighbor, and the hero of that story was the enemy group, the Samaritan. James is following the lead of Jesus and he's calling us to a new kind of community. Our church is supposed to look different than the way the world looks. Our values are supposed to look different. And it begins with, if you want to counter and correct favoritism, recognize your neighbor in everyone. And the second thing will be to recognize that everybody has value in God's kingdom. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul mentions the, the body of Christ in, in its most extensive form, and he compares it to a human body. So we have fingers, we have toes, nose, ears, eyes, and every part is just as important as the other. If one part suffers, the rest of the body suffers. 
but we also bring our own unique gifts, personality, and spiritual gifts within each church that we're a part of. And every part has value. We need to learn to recognize the value in others. The example that James used in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, is he says if a, a gold-fingered man with shining clothes, you could literally read it like that, or a poor man in dirty clothes walks into your assembly, you know, who is it that you're going to favor? Are you going to pay equal attention to both of them? Well, the word assembly that's used there The Greek word could be translated as synagogue. Synagogue was their house of worship, so let's go with that. If somebody walks into our house of worship, the time where we worship on Sunday mornings or Bible class on Wednesday nights, let's say that these two people walk into our assembly. How do we respond? The Washington Post several years ago tried this experiment at the Washington, D.C. metro station. They put this guy that you can see that's circled right there, uh, playing the violin for 45 minutes in the metro station. And their experiment was to see, do we recognize talent in unexpected places? Do we recognize beauty in unexpected places? Well, about 100 people walked by this guy playing the violin in about a 45-minute time period, but only six of them stopped and listened, and only two of them put money in his violin case. Now, the twist in the experiment here was that this wasn't just anybody. It was a guy named Joshua Bell, who was a famous musician. His violin was worth $3.5 million, and he had performed in Boston just a few nights before it, and the minimum ticket was $100 a ticket. So, pretty famous musician, very expensive violin. He's sitting there playing it in a regular old place, and people don't even notice. A few nights before that, you'd have to spend $100 to go watch him play live. So I guess their experiment was saying, no, we don't normally recognize beauty or talent in unexpected places, but I like this experiment because I want to just apply it to the church for a moment. Do we, not only do we recognize beauty in our neighbor and others, our talent, but do we recognize the value in others? We want to correct the sin of favoritism Recognize our neighbor and everyone. Recognize that everybody has value. And then this third point is to recognize the leveling of the cross. There's a strange part in this text that we read just a few minutes ago from James chapter 2, verse 9 through 13. Where James all of a sudden starts talking about the Ten Commandments. Adultery, murder. Let's say you haven't committed adultery, but you have murdered. You've broken all of it. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And then he talks about mercy, and he talks about judgment. We could get down into the weeds of trying to explain that text, but I think James had the cross in mind when he mentioned this part. He's talking about favoritism and why we shouldn't show favoritism, and the law, and the law of liberty, and mercy. It's often been said that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We all come to the cross with the same need. We are desperately in need of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And if there's ever a reason to view others as equal rather than somebody above someone else, it's because we all come to the cross at the same level. So James is calling us out of the normal values of the world and into this upside-down kingdom of God. We talked about it last week. Going on this inversion table. And the way that we invert, the way that we go upside down with Jesus is 
Instead of seeing others and judging them based on age, outward experience, or outward appearance, or affluence, or these other things that the world values and judges, we look at others and we see our neighbor. We look at others and we look and see their value. And we're reminded that at the cross of Jesus Christ, we're all equal. When we come to the waters of baptism, we all come to the waters of baptism at the same level. When we took communion earlier, we all took the same amount of communion. So Jesus Christ has made us equal. And because of that, we don't show favoritism. And also because Jesus didn't show favoritism. And we want to reflect Christ. This morning, if you have any need, if you are ready to come to the cross of Christ or these waters of baptism, we would love to talk to you. If you need to be prayed for, encouraged, whatever it may be, come talk to me, come talk to one of our shepherds. I want to invite you to stand and let's continue to sing. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never